Welcome, everyone, to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and thank you for joining us, me, the guest, the podcast, etc., etc. So I'm on vacation right now, and it's awesome. I'm in San Diego, hanging out uh, with my wife, a little, uh, little away time from the uh, the kiddo. And uh, it's been nine years since we have been married, and that is uh, it's an accomplishment. Ten years is a bigger deal, but yeah, nine years, pretty awesome. So shout out to my wife for putting up with me and, uh, you know, doing all this weird stuff that she's like, oh, man, here's some more time you got to spend away from the family. But anyways, let's talk about guests, because that's why you came here, right? Hirakesh Hirway, he is uh, a member slash founding dude of a band called The 1AM Radio, and more recently, he is doing an amazing podcast that you should be checking out called Song Exploder. Basically, what he does is take apart songs from guitars, samples, whatever it is that can, this song contains. He breaks it apart, asks the song creator like how this was created. And uh, for those of you that are into the more aggressive stuff, uh, he did a episode on Converge and a song called Dark Horse. It is a beautiful place to start, and then, uh, yeah, you'll fall in love with the podcast. It's awesome. So I sat down with him in his L.A. home, and we talked, but more on him in a minute. Let's get some business out of the way. So some of you picked up the rallying cry from the last episode and uh, tried to start a Wikipedia page. I really, really appreciate that. I'll be corresponding with you and sending out fun stuff to you. But uh, for some reason, it got blocked. I, I've literally never contributed anything to Wikipedia. So I don't know what the rules and regulations are, but we'll get through this. But you, the listener, I would love your help in starting a Wikipedia page. That that legitimizes the show in ways that, uh, you know, it, other people may just like trip across it and be like, oh, yeah. And I think it would be great also to have kind of the, you know, the the most... The jumping off points, because, you know, I mean, at this point, it's like this is what, episode 120? That's a lot of episodes to dig through. So some people need a little guidance. So, you know, for those of you that are contributing to the Wikipedia page, do that. Be like, hey, here's my favorite episode and contribute that and write about it and that sort of stuff. Anyways, just an idea. But uh, I want to get some review mentions and another donation plug out there. Uh, a person named Meat and Cheese from Great Britain said, I can't believe I found this show so far into it and I'm so excited about it, which is awesome because that's what I love about this. You can get into it at any time and then dive backwards into the archive and be like, holy crap, this is a bunch of awesome stuff. So thank you for that review on the iTunes store. And there's something really special. At least it was really special to me. So a few episodes ago, I interviewed John Bradley from the band Dads. And that show got so much feedback. People really, really appreciated it and loved our discussion. And so then a few days after I posted the show, I saw a nice donation come through the pipes. And I was like, huh, that name sounds familiar. It was from a person named Kathy Bradley. So I was like, wait a minute, is this John's mother? Because the address was from a town he was originally from. And so anyways, I texted John and he was like, yep, that is 100% my mom. How amazing is that? So she decided to donate to the show and I can't thank her enough for that. She was just like, hey, great interview with John. She didn't even say like my son or anything like that. So big shout out to her. It's awesome to get that sort of feedback. I mean, from a person who probably has never listened to a podcast before. So it's amazing. Anyways, propertyofzach.com. Visit them, our awesome media partner. And uh, yeah, review the show. Visit the website, 100wordspodcast.com. 
and then email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. So for those of you that are regular followers of the show, uh, about once a month, I bring on a great friend of the show. His name is Dave Anthony, and he writes for a website called theavclub.com, one of my favorite pop culture destinations. So uh, we talk about records because a lot of you enjoy the recommendation stuff. And if you do, check out a few episodes ago. I, I posted a bonus show of all recommendations of stuff you should be checking out over the summer of 2014. Anyways, without further ado, here is my discussion with Dave, and then I'll pop back in, give you a little more context for Hirakesh, and then we will uh, we'll dive into the interview, okay? You know, I, I'm going to say I was disappointed that you decided not to really, really challenge my uh, my my taste and and deliver a really hard record for me to to get into because this the we'll just dive right in the Hard Girls record that you sent over uh, was so good and I know you you kind of set me up as saying this is could potentially be one of your favorite records of the year but yeah tell me more about it because I, I never heard of these dudes prior to you showing them to me well that's the thing is i felt kind of like i was thinking about it more and more i was like ah, i know i said in the last one like oh i should try to find something ray won't like right. and it just became you know you and i exchanged a few emails trying to like you know figure it out or like narrow it down to like what's something that like and not in like a troll way of me being like oh like you're gonna hate this but like something I would genuinely like, and you might not, but it, it felt like that was just too disingenuous to try and orchestrate. You know, like we were kind of like having a lot of similar opinions, and nothing was really true. coming up. And then, like this Hard Girls record came out, and I was just like, I just need to talk to th- about this to anyone who will listen to me because um, the Hard, Hard Girls are a band who've been around for a few years now, and you know they put out a like like debut like seven song ep mini lp whatever you want to call it and you know the recording quality is kind of rough uh but there's a couple songs on there that are really really good and got me really interested in them and the way i came to them was they were on quote unquote records which is jeff rosenstrock from bomb the music industry's label and i was like oh this band's pretty cool but what i didn't know when i first started listening to them i was like something about this sounds really familiar is that their guitar player mike was in one of my favorite bands ever called Shinobu, mm. who are like this really underrated uh, like California Asian man band who like really walked the line between pop punk and indie rock. And I, I just think we're a really unique band and the people who got into them all love them, but just not a lot of people got into them. So I, I started getting into Hard Girls. They put out a record called Isn't It Worse uh, maybe two years ago that I really liked. And then this came out, and and from the jump, I was just like, this is brilliant. Like, I don't say that often because it sounds super hyperbolic, but, like, from the start, you know, even though that first song kind of opens with, like, the Against Me new wave riff, (laughs) it, it, like, really builds to something different. It's not trying to be that Against Me song. Like, from where it goes after those first 40 seconds, it's a totally different song in my mind. And the thing I really love about the record is... I've listened to it constantly. I've seen them live now. And like, I keep forgetting just how many good songs are on it. You know, like usually after the third or fourth song, you're kind of settling in and like, you know what to expect. But every time I go through it now, I feel like I'm constantly being blindsided by, it. I was like, Oh, I forgot this song was on here. And like, Oh, I forgot how good this song was. And that just happens from like song one through the end at track 14. And, uh, 
I just, there, there's something about it. They're just like this really wiry, lean, three-piece punk band who, you know, in the first three or four songs come out and write these really catchy, really short, fast songs. And then midway through the record, towards the end of the record, it really slows down and spreads out and, and takes its time. It's very, uh, for lack of a better term, patient. It's not rushing to get places. You know, it'll, it'll do a long two-minute instrumental passage to get to a giant hook you never saw coming. And it's just, it's been pretty much in constant rotation since I first got the download of it. And, like, I play the record constantly. And it, everyone I've shown it to... Uh, you know, my bandmates, you know, friends, I'm like, you have to listen to this record. And everyone, uh, you know, at least most of the people I value really closely have freaked out about it equally as much. So I just want to like keep sharing that because it's such a cool feeling to be like, I love this thing. And it seems like a lot of the other people I'm around also really love this thing. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely that level of enjoyment that you share with other people when it's like, it's like just a, enough under the radar that you feel you know, comfortable enough in being like, oh, hey, have you listened to this, you know, this new record as opposed to like, oh, have you listened to the new most popular band that's around right now, their new record? Like, <laughs> yeah, know, of course, everyone's listened to it, you know, but th there's definitely that like, oh, dude, have you heard that? And then, you know, without any, your friends obviously will have no, you know, air of pretension of like, oh, no, dude, but I've heard of that band, you know, like that'll drop. But they'll just be like, oh, no, I haven't heard that. And then, yeah, that's exactly everything that you're describing about the you know the fun and joy of the record is exactly what i got as well where i was just i was listening to it on a uh their punknews.org stream because i was just like and after like the second listen i immediately went over to the asian man store bought the lp and yeah i just it's it's so good it has all of those elements that make the whole you know gainesville sound cool but then they have this this like you said this sort of you know joy slash wiry punk thing that kind of is emblematic of of you know california and northern california in particular it's just all these cool elements that kind of you know congeal into a unique punk record which is it's harder and harder to do these days it's one of those things where it took me by surprise and and with asian man specifically like i think they have a strong history of always kind of having these pockets of small bands that maybe aren't the biggest ones on the label, but are doing really interesting things. And, and Shinobu is one of them. And this hard girls record to me, you know, it's, I listen to it. And the thing that sticks with me more than anything is like, wow, this is what punk rock can be when it gets old. You know, it can be excited. It can be very energetic, very poppy, very fast paced, but it can, feel nuanced and it can do kind of strange things even with the guitar riffing you know it's not straight power chords for a lot of it like the song 996 tears which is just this like two minute blast it's just this constantly moving you know guitar riff and a lot of you know the, the guitar stuff paired with the one of the vocalists like it reminds me a lot of like archers of loaf um who are a band i love who i don't think get referenced all that much anymore and they they have this weird thing of like, this is a pop punk band, this is an indie rock band, and it, it doesn't try to apologize or wash one hand with the other. It's just like, this is what we are, this is the band we are, and we're really, really good at what we do. And it's exciting for me to see a band come out. You can kind of see the reference points, but they feel like they have their own identity regardless of when you're like, oh, that kind of sounds like, you know, a no idea band, or that sounds like a classic Asian man band. Like, it always 
feels like hard girls, even when they're referencing something else to me. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think it's, it is, it is interesting to see the, you know, the, the sort of Asian man records thing as well, where it's like, they're, you know, for all intent and purposes, like Asian man records, isn't really a label in the sense of, you know, they're not going to get out and like give you tour support, but it's like when they put their stamp of quality on it, there's definitely still that reverence of people that, you know, really, really pay attention to music where it's like, yo, this is going to be quality. You know, it feels so true to this record where it's like, oh yeah, if this came out on any other label that has, you know, less of a reputation, it might've, you know, it might've been kind of, you know, lost in the, the overall shuffle. It, it, it maybe eventually would have kind of poked its head up, but because it's on Asian man, I think it's only strengthened by that fact, you know? Oh, for sure. And, and Asian man's a label to this day for me where when they sign someone, if I've never heard them, you know, I'm going to listen to it just because Mike Park's such a great dude and has, you know, for so long, you know, really across genres kind of honed in on stuff that, you know, maybe isn't the coolest thing going at the moment, maybe isn't the trendiest thing going at the moment, but is a really, really good thing going at that moment in time. And I, I am very glad that, you know, he's still putting stuff out, even if he's still working out of his, you know, parents garage. Yeah, no, for sure. There's, there's that level of just like, it's heartening. Like he did, it it was so cool because he, uh, this was like maybe a year and a half or so ago. Um, he married a a friend of mine and to see him like being the officiant at a wedding was totally like, that's weird. There's Mike Park. (laughs) You're like, oh, of course he would also know how to be legally able to marry people. What can't this man do? (laughs) Totally, totally. And yeah, it's just, it's heartening. That's that's all it is of just like this. It's so cool that, you know, a person is able to subsist themselves just from a financial standpoint of like, oh, yeah, just just keep doing your thing, man. Keep keep putting out awesome records and you know, keep having the friends that will want to, you know, release their B sides with you, even though they're in gigantic bands. It's it's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I feel like we could, should switch gears now to your record, which is very, very different from what I chose. Slightly, but- slightly. <laughs> What made you pick the Under the Skin soundtrack? I well, I mean, for I, I took your challenge of <laughs> uh, of trying to present because you know I know you we were trading emails and you said that you were you know kind of circling around the idea of soundtracks and you know trying to figure out which ones spoke to you and which ones didn't speak to you. So it was like I think you're in a place of where I was like maybe I don't know a year and a half or so ago before I took a real deep dive into soundtracks. And so I chose this one in particular just because it does like the musician that is the composer of this, of the under the skin soundtrack is like Micah Levi, which honestly, I don't, mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with her at all prior to this besides I, just I wasn't either. Yeah, yeah. When I was searching it out, like, cause I was trying to find, find it on audio and I was like, fuck, like who did this? And I, I saw it was, saw it was her and just searched that in and, and started playing it. And from the jump, I was, as you said, like I'm kind of dancing around, like really giving myself full bore to like going into the soundtrack world because I do like a lot of like ambient, you know, slow, quiet, even just purely electronic stuff in that realm. Mm-hmm. And, and this really did hit me right away. The thing that you know stuck out to me is it reminded me a lot of what I like in like a John Carpenter film where it, it's setting a mood, but it, it's it's really is taking you somewhere. And a lot of this like 
from like the second track, I kind of put air quotes around that, like the second movement, if you will, right. it's really fucking unsettling for a long time. Oh, yeah. It's tense and just, it, it, I mean, for me, it reminded me of listening to, and this is a strange comparison, but it reminds me of listening to really intense, like, you know, drone metal records where it's kind of unsettling. It kind of, you know, is taking you somewhere that maybe you don't really want to be, but it's executed so well that there's nothing you can do but just go with it. You you haven't seen the movie, correct? I have not seen the movie, no. Which is like an... I, that's why I chose this this particular soundtrack as well because it's sometimes it's very hard for a soundtrack to obviously like live on its own and be musically interesting enough for a person to you know parachute in like you did and just be like okay like I'm I'm listening to this as music as opposed to a companion piece to something visual so all the sentiments you're sharing are like so obviously completely directly related to the movie because like it's the movie's unsettling like I saw the movie and then I think. I think later on that day I sought out the soundtrack and then bought it on vinyl and was, was just mesmerized by it in the same way that you were, because it was like, it obviously takes you on a journey in the same way that the movie does. And it it does it in a way that is, it's musically akin to obviously a band and a performance as opposed to like a soundscape, even though it still does (laughs) kind of hit those, those notes for obvious reasons, like as a soundtrack should. But I mean, it's going to be weird because when I'm doing my year end list, like I can't help, but think about this for being in like my potential top 10, just because it's like, it's for me, it's perfect work music. Cause it's obviously not. Oh, absolutely. It won't tear you away from like deep thought and something that you're writing or whatever. Yeah. It was just so cool. And it's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that you, you engaged with it, even though you didn't have, you know, any sort of visual reference points. It's just like, yeah, I'm just going to listen to this. And I kind of, I know Scarlett Johansson's in it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is I had wanted to see Under the Skin and, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot of good things about it. And, you know, working at AV Club, like we have our film people who, you know, I read their reviews and, and see what they're talking about. And there's a lot of stuff I'm really interested. It's just often really difficult for me to find the time to go out and go to the movies. Yeah. And, and kind of like you were saying, like, this is good work music. And that's kind of what has always appealed to me about getting into soundtracks is it's like a lot of stuff to kind of, all right, this can give me... 30 minutes to 80 minutes of sounds that I can just kind of, it keeps my momentum up. And it's, it's why mentally it reminds me of something like Pelican or Isis even, which has vocals, but a band that is, is writing these really long things that, that are very subtle in the way they change. You know, it's, it's not bludgeoning you with an idea. It's just going to slowly and surely ratchet up that tension until it, there were times where it, it pulled my focus away because it, it would work me into this place where I'm like, holy shit, like I feel really tense and like need to like not be right. I need to look at something else and just like break from this. And and it it makes me want to see the movie, which I already did, but it makes me like, all right, I should actually search this out and, and this is something that I should be spending time with. And and the the one point of view is that I'd like to kind of talk about because I think it's really fascinating is I feel like we're living in this time where people are appre- uh, appreciating soundtracks as musical work and no longer just as accompaniment. And I, I, I find that really fascinating because listening to something like this, this is a, a really amazing work that, you know, has been put together. And I, I think it stands up you know, as strong as anything that's a traditional song or traditional album. 
Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, I, it is, it is interesting because there are certain things like in my deep dives into the soundtrack world there, you know, it's like, whatever I buy, like I'm going to reference a terrible release that I was really disappointed in purchasing, uh, the, like the original last house on the left soundtrack, which was, Oh yeah. It, it I referenced it in an email to, uh, to you where it was like, I bought it and it just, I, I bought it having seen the movie forever ago didn't really think about the soundtrack or score to it. And then it, it was, it, it was stupid. It was just noises basically. Like I didn't feel like it did anything, you know? And so for sure. And it's just like the sound of like chains rattling and like glass breaking. Yeah. It was all, yeah. It was almost as like sound effecty record. It's like, dude, what? This is so dumb. I can't believe I just spent 20 bucks in this vinyl. I can't believe anyone put that out. Anyone's like, man, I want to jam to last house on the left. Dude, it's astonishing how much of a cottage industry has been built up around these, these sort of schlocky, you know, B horror movies slash cult classics. It's unbelievable, but it is, it is interesting to listen to these things. Like there are, you know, I mean, it's like that poster company Mondo. It's like them releasing, they have released pieces of vinyl that I've purchased. I've never seen the movie. I'm like, well, I'm just going to dive right into this. And it's like, there are certain movie or certain soundtracks that I've listened to have been like, that's really cool. And then go back and watch the movie. And I'm like, wow, I, I like the movie that much better because of it. And so it's, I, w- I honestly wouldn't be surprised if once you see under the skin, you're going to be like, you're, you're already going to be anticipating the tension. And then when the music starts, it's going to give you that sort of weird feeling of like, I mean, same way as like when you watch a band play and you already are familiar with their music. It's like, it's so weird. Well, yeah, I, the way I, I, I liken this is like, and it, it kind of works really well here where we, with the two records we're discussing is that like, I listened to that Hard Girls record to death and I went to see them, they were opening for Andrew X and Jihad. They would play, they played like six songs and I'm like, holy shit, like what's next? And like, they would hit that first chord and I would be like, yeah, like it would just all come rushing to me. And I think, you know, listening to the soundtrack first when I do see the movie is going to give me the experience of seeing the band live. It's like I'm familiar with the movements. I kind of have an idea of how this might work, but now I'm in for the visual element that this has been lacking, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's not, you know, a perfect analogy, but like that's kind of how I've been thinking about it in my head. Like I'm going to, you know, hear the first note of something that I'm already familiar with and be like, oh God, like uh, something's about to happen. I don't know what, but I know what this is building to. Yeah. At least in, in, in a feeling manner, maybe not in a story or plot manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's totally cool. And I just, I love, I love the, the attention that, you know, people continually have with the, you know, curation of soundtracks and like how they are getting, you know, bands involved, like that movie, that Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion, how M83, you know, M83, however you like to pronounce it, <laughs> yeah, did, did the soundtrack for it. It's just cool to see that, the usual conventions of just like, Hey, we're going to work with these like 10 composers, the whole industry, the whole movie soundtrack industry is going to work with these 10 people. And that's it. And it's, I mean the same way that, you know, Trent Reznor has done so many cool things for, for his scores, but yeah, it's just so cool to see that landscape change and engage people in ways that they probably never would have, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. Well, and, and that's the thing is like, you kind of, you know, well, like I know it's something you've been interested in, like with, uh, you know, talking to you uh, about it and like doing this, like you're kind of opening that door for me to be like, all right, like this is something, you know, I've kind of flirted with the idea of, with, of like, all right, I should, you know, buy some soundtracks, kind of see what this is all about. But after really spending time with this, 
I, I really do want to give it more of a deep dive. And, and again, like, I don't think I'll ever be an expert on it, but I, I do really enjoy it. And for me, that's all I need is like, if I like something, I'm going to do it. And if I don't, well, yeah, I try. The feeling that I got once I started to open up this world is definitely the same fashion as like, you know, when you first dive into, you know, punk or hardcore or whatever, you just start to feel um, more connected to this weird scene that, exists but you know is mostly ignored and so when you start to be like oh i see this 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 guy was important for these years and vice versa it's just yeah you you feel at this juncture in my life you know in my early 30s to be like hey i can dive into this other musical subculture that is awesome and it makes me feel not the same way of getting into that stuff but just another you know area of obsession (laughs) yeah exactly and there's one thing I, I totally forgot to mention about the Hard Girls record. I don't want to waste too much more time <laughs> of the listener and you. <laughs> but uh, one of the most important things that I didn't note until I like looked over at my shelf and saw the record sticking out is that Hard Girls is actually the backing band for Classics of Love, which is Jesse Michaels from Operation Ivy's hardcore band. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. So, yeah, the Classics of Love record that Asia Man put out a couple years ago, which is phenomenal if you know you haven't checked it out, if you really love like. 80s ska punk hardcore it's amazing at that but the band with jesse singing is classics of love without jesse singing and the bass player and guitar player singing they're hard girls so like they've got a really good range that like you know is is kind of often lost because people are just like oh it's the dude from operation ivy and don't really pay attention to the other dudes surrounding that and that's just something that like I, I would feel absolutely remiss if I didn't like stop everything and derail our conversation to bring up. No, no, that's the, I mean, those little contextual notes make, make everything that much better. So thank you for doing so. You're <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Well, I, I think this was very informative to me, you, and everybody else that's listening. So thank, thank you again, Dave, for your uh, expertise and continually impressing me with your recommendations. <laughs> Likewise, Ray, always a pleasure. And uh, I hope people check both these things out on Drigger. Yeah, for sure. There you go. There's the records that you need to check out. Thank you very much, Dave, for contributing, as always. And uh, so, yeah, Hirakesh, he, uh, like I said, is is an amazing host, an amazing podcast, is an amazing musician, does a lot of film score stuff. Uh, he's just a good dude. We had traveled in a lot of the same circles, but never met one another. So he was very gracious and said that I would love to be on your podcast. That would be awesome. So I went up to his house we hung out for a bit we discussed so many different things and it was it was a great discussion and i just love it because even though he has gone different ways in regards to the music world and not getting more aggressive but getting more uh you know obviously soundtracks (laughs) soundtracky if that's a word (laughs) but uh he he still has so many of the same upbringings as many of us have had so check this out and after the show i will talk to you again I made my way there Breathed that air and walked on those dunes Sank my feet in the sand Holding your daughter's hand I usually start these things off just my own personal sort of introduction to you and what you were doing or what you are doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I became aware of you just obviously through 1AM radio and because of my affiliation with Level Plan, like we were talking about earlier. And it was always one of those things where I, I knew you had existed 
in the sort of, you know, hardcore punk world prior to like 1am, like that was where your roots are. Um, am, am I correct in that? Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I used to go to like straight edge shows in Massachusetts. Right. And, yeah. and, and so then when I, then obviously once 1am radio was, was a thing and obviously on level plane, I always, I love that notion of just like, oh, hey, yeah, like all that stuff that you listen to, like how about you try to listen to this? I presume that was like an appealing thing for you when you started working with Level Plane or like was that even a notion or you're just like, oh, this is a fun opportunity? I, I n- never thought of it as like a conscious attempt to try and change people's mind or anything. It's just right. that um, I liked the bands on Level Plane. I liked the label. I liked Greg. Right. And he he liked what I was doing. And, uh, and so it seemed like a good opportunity. Yeah. More than anything, just to be like, I was just thinking, here's somebody who wants to do, who wants to put out the record, and right. I love what he does, and right. ready to do like awesome colored vinyl that I want to do. So yeah, it seemed like a good idea. Yeah, you're like this door is open. Pretty much should walk to this because it seems like it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. The notion of people, because I mean, how old are you? Are you thirty? Like mid- in my thirties. Okay, yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm thirty three, and so it's like I feel like. I've been afforded a certain luxury in the fact that it's like, yeah, you know, when you're whatever, 14, 15, 16 years old, get into punk and hardcore. Um, and then through either, you know, one or two circumstances, you, your musical palette starts to widen and you're able to appreciate more stuff. But then I find so many people that don't have that, that aren't afforded that luxury of widening their palettes. I honestly, it's like I get bummed because I, I, I look at that and I'm like, oh man, you're not experienced. Like you're, you're going to view yourself as, this thing that you were when you were 15 years old and like never give anything any other time of day. I'm sure you experienced that. You know, I never actually, like, I know that those people Ex- exist. Sure. And I'm sure we're at a lot of the shows that I play and be like, whatever about this. But right. the people that I hung out with uh-huh. um, always had, you know, really diverse music tastes. For okay. me, like 1994 was about Fugazi as much as, much as it was about like DJ Shadow and Portishead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like a lot of the, people that I used to play music with sort of were similar, you know, I remember uh, like the first, the first sort of bigger hardcore shows I would do, they were all with Drums Dream and those guys uh, for being a heavy, you know, screamy band, they, all those guys ever talked about was like, you know, Bowery Electric and uh, um, a lot of pretty melodic stuff. And so that's why I think they were, they were excited to take me on tour because they were like, oh, this is like a lot this is like the other side of the stuff that we listen to. Right, right, right. This is, yeah, because there's definitely that, especially as a touring band, there's that notion of like, oh, this is nice to not play with a typical band that sounds exactly like us. Yeah. This can, this this may alienate some of the audience. They may want to, you know, sit down or fall asleep or what, you know, ever, whatever cliche you can put on your music. But as a band, it's refreshing to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I used to get mixes from, mixtapes from Jeff Smith, the singer. Oh, yeah. And, uh. And, like, there wouldn't be any hardcore on it. It would all be, like, sort of dreamy, electronic, yeah, indie pop stuff. Do you think that has... Because, uh, I mean, I, I totally... That, that experience definitely, you know, rings true with myself and my friends. Um, I, I think some of it... Ha- I mean, I've tried to theorize on, like, why that is, where it's, like, a lot of the music, especially, like, that people end up making careers off of, um, there's always that aspirational aspect of, like, I wish I could be doing this. Like, in the sense of, like, you know, whatever, like, a pop-punk band, like, you know, Newfound Glory or whatever. It's like, you know that those individual members have all these different tastes, and they're just like, I wish I could do this. And, of course, there's some side projects or whatever. Um, but do you think, like, because we're young, we're limited to the experiences, like, what we could actually, like, play, you know? <laughs> I don't know. 
I guess what I've made, I guess the one I'm radio is just a product of what I can do. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're like, this is, this, this is the limit of my scope from a musical, like my, my musical talents. I mean, not, not saying that your musical talents are limited, but that this is what's, I guess, at grasp for you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this idea that, um, you know, you have to edit yourself. There's, mm-hmm. even if you love 18 different ideas, right. you only have enough time in a day. Time is the, really the biggest factor. That's true. You know, and if you want to push anything forward, you can only push, you could either push that one idea forward every day for a year, or you could push 365 different ideas, you know, a tiny bit ahead each day. Right. And so I think it makes sense that you, then you, once you start something and it's, you know, you've got any kind of momentum, you're like, well, I don't want to give that up. And, Right. Do something completely different. Yeah. If something, yeah, the the proverbial ball is rolling, it definitely, especially from just a, you know, life satisfaction standpoint, it's like, oh, I, I, I got to divert this. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you yourself, were you, you were born and raised in the East Coast, like you are saying. Yeah, the, Massachusetts. The Massachusetts. Where in particular? Peabody, Mass. Uh, Pe- of course, you said it right. Yeah. <laughs> Peabody. Uh, you can't say Peabody. No. <laughs> Um, and so what was your, uh, you know, how was your, your, your growing up in that area? Cause I've never been to Peabody, but I've been, I mean like, cause Worcester, Worcester, that's not too far from it. it was there, no, it's or? like uh, 40 minutes to the south. Okay. Um, I spent time there for like shows and play shows in Boston and stuff like that, but never, never been there. So mm-hmm. what, um, there's no reason to go unless you needed to go to the mall. Okay. You guys have a good mall. We have the good mall. Yeah. <laughs> we used to have the bad mall and then, you know, things switched around and our mall became the good mall. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. Which is huge. Like malls are such a. A central, I mean, such a focal point for teenage life and just, I mean, tour life too, because you were just like, what are we going to do? <laughs> I guess we'll, I guess we'll go to a mall. Yeah. Um, so what was your family structure like? Do you have brothers and sisters, that sort of stuff? Yeah, I have one older sister. Okay. And it's just a, it's a, me, my mom and dad and my sister. Okay. And what did your parents do? Is there... um, my mom worked at Sears. Okay. And my dad's a food scientist. Oh, wow. That must have been an interesting topic of conversation, or if if he even brought it home. You know, I never I never learned to talk about it with my dad until much later. Right. Um, I think also my dad's work when I was growing up wasn't nearly as interesting as it is now. Now oh, he yeah. actually like develops new products and comes up with new things. Okay. So we talk about it a lot more. Back then, he was doing more um, like compliance with the FDA. Oh sure. You know, stuff like that. Not not as exciting. Right. 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 Um, and so, and what's your what's your background? Like your your nationality? Oh yeah, um, my family's Indian. Okay. My mom and my dad came over in the seventies. My sister was born in India, and I was born in Boston. Oh, okay. And their desire to come over here to the states was, I mean, opportunities. Like, was there any? Sort yeah, of my dad my dad came over for grad school. Oh, okay. Um, so he was living here. He met my mom in India. It was they had an arranged marriage, and then when they got married, she moved to America. As part of the deal. Okay, yeah. and they. Uh, because I was, I mean, the, the, the cultural difference of the, you know, the arranged marriage and stuff like yeah. that, was, was that something that was ever, I guess, ordained for you? Like that, that was what they... No, I mean, I think by the time, I mean, by the time I was old enough for it to even be a thing, it was, you know, and this is one of the things that's luckily about having an older sibling, you know, <laughs> that we were already sort of culturally uh, American enough that, right. that it wasn't even ever... It wasn't going to be imposed on you. No. Right, right, right. Yeah, because it, it, especially from the, the, the concept of like, you know, because some families obviously, have, it's like w- once they do relocate to America and like start to, in you know, incorporate some of the, you know, Western values or whatever. But then they're like, oh, we have to hold on to these one or two things in yeah. order to make us feel like we're connected. Right. <laughs> no, they're pretty progressive. That's good. Yeah. 
Um, and so then, uh, so yeah, as you, as you started to kind of, you know, grow up in your, your formative years, what kind of kid did you find yourself being? Like, were you, um, cause you strike me, even though we've obviously just met, but in observing your, your, uh, musical output, it's like, you know, you seemed like a very thoughtful, quiet, reserved, friendly, but uh, I mean, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but like, you know, at a distance where it's like, you, you, it'll take you a minute in order to like warm up to a person and be like, <laughs> okay. So I don't know if any of those things ring true to your, uh, you're, you're growing up or anything like that. Um, I mean, I was growing up, I think I, I thought I was like a math science kid. Oh, okay. Um, although I did a lot of art. I played music and I drew all the time. Okay. Um, and uh, I think there was just a thing back then where if you were if you were smart or if you were good at school, then people kind of tended to assume you were going to you know, be more math oriented. Sure. Like the idea of being good at language or something was mm-hmm. not, is not something that really manifests when you're in fifth grade, I feel like. Yeah. No. Um, and so, um, yeah, but I was basically a nerdy kid. You know, I played Dungeons and Dragons and, uh, oh, perfect. um, yeah, hung out with my friends and yeah, you were, you were an indoor kid as they say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I played basketball and I played soccer. Oh, okay. Year. Um, I, I loved that, but, um, but I wasn't like a jock. Right, right. You weren't, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't like a shut in or anything, but I did have really, I watched a lot of TV, and I and I had really nerdy tastes. Right, nerdy interests. You were, yeah. yeah. I read fantasy novels, and oh, that's perfect. Yeah. What's so dungeon? How deep did you get into Dungeons and Dragons? Um, pretty deep. I mean, okay. I my you know my best friend Matt growing up, he had he had all the books. He had a lot of relatives who who didn't have children, so he would sort of be the recipient of lots and lots of gifts every year. Yeah. So um, we would hang out, and, and I would get the benefit of all his stuff so I could like read his comic book collection and read his Dungeons and Dragons books. And so we would always do that stuff together. We would, uh, so we, I, I actually learned D and D, you know, without Matt and then Matt and I got into like advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had all the books and we had, you know, I mean pretty deep. It was like a pretty yeah, big yeah. collection of, yeah, you were leveling up. Yeah. The funny thing is like, mo- we didn't have like a ton of people to play with. Sure. We had maybe, you know, in middle school, we finally met a couple couple guys who we were playing sometimes with but a lot of the times it was just the two of us and you can't really do that much no yeah um, you limited <laughs> yeah so it wasn't like we had like a weekly crew right that we would get together it was a lot of it was just reading the books and sort of imagining sure stuff. this is what a quest would be like yeah right? yeah exactly making characters yeah and then just sort of dreaming about the world it's and, and that i like i love people that have that sort of like singular experience because I, I didn't do dungeons and dragons but i did this like i mean Lone Wolf. It was this book series. There was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 books. I mean, it's basically a way, way more in-depth version of like Choose Your Own Adventure. Yeah. I still have those books on my bookshelf because they were so formative for me to, like you said, create these worlds that was like, yeah, of course there's a structure and there are things like the process I loved, but then just giving me, because I'm an only child and like the ability to just be like, dude, I'm going to be in here for like four hours. <laughs> and just that, that ability kind of like to feel that level of like, independence yeah because i think a lot of it you know even if you're playing sports or or you're doing these other like you know typical kind of you know whatever elementary school slash junior high experiences um there's still that element of of like well i'm i'm doing this because i got told to or whatever you know you're not consciously thinking about it but yeah that's great i'm i just i get excited anytime (laughs) (laughs) anybody has that experience um but yeah i went pretty deep that's good i'm glad and it wasn't just dungeons and dragons you know we were into like palladium okay Robotech? Uh, we did have, I mean, 
we never played Robotech, but there was a Robotech, you know, book that went in the sure in that Palladium world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there was a Marvel role playing game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Definitely. Yeah, it's gosh, it's yeah, it's so great. And it's it's so interesting now, obviously, it's like how the you know, nerd culture is I mean it's not even that's not even, Yeah, it's just pop culture. Exactly. Um and so it's like the the notion of that be, ever being like, you know, in a corner being like, Oh, like that's you, you gotta go to a weird shop to get that stuff. Right. Now it's just like it's so quaint. You're yeah. Like, oh yeah, I go into a mall and <laughs> Yeah. Um and then the uh so when did when did music start to so kind of infiltrate your life? Or like, were your parents musical? Did they? My parents uh, weren't musical, um, but they. I think it was their idea to start me on piano lessons uh-huh. um, when I was six or seven. Okay. Um, they, I think it was their idea, and and I said I wanted to do it. I mean, who knows what? I know I was going to say, like, but I said I wanted to do it. <laughs> right. And uh, but we didn't have a piano or anything like that. Actually, my sister was really sweet. You know, she was eleven at the time. Uh-huh. She she drew like a keyboard on a piece of paper for me. And so I would like practice on that. I would just play the, I would put my fingers on, on the keys on, sure. the, on the piece of paper and play on the kitchen table. Right. So if she was, if she's really committed, she would make the noises for you too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's very sweet though. She's like, well, you know, I gotta, I'm gonna take care of my brother. I'm gonna hook him up. This is yeah. what we're going to do. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, it's always, the piano is always such an interesting thing. Like, especially when it comes into a person's life, like willingly, um, because then there's that, there's that pushback of like, you know, I mean, cause I started playing when I was in like fourth or fifth grade and did it for about two years. But all I cared about was like, Hey, I really want to learn Tom Petty free fall. Like I, like I want to learn the cheers theme song. Right. I wasn't learning anything. I was just yeah. learning to mimic. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure your experience was obviously different in the sense, I mean, maybe you were bringing songs in, but there was maybe more of a music theory or like how to actually like read notes or. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How you're actually supposed to learn it? Maybe I just had bad teacher. <laughs> um, and so then, so the piano started off. Um, and was it always one of those things where it was, you know, prevailing throughout your life? Like you still continued lessons for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I played. Um, yeah, I had like a teacher, and I would mm-hmm. go have lessons, and we would have a recital Recitals. you know every year. Yeah. And then, um, and then in middle school, there was like a school band. Okay. And I started playing in that mm. but then um but i was put in the percussion section you know piano was in the percussion section so it was right. me and like nine drummers and uh and and i think there was another kid who would play keyboards and there, there was only one keyboard there uh you know playing the piano part so there would be times when i would just be put you know go play the bass drum and there'd be like eight or nine guys playing snare right but um that's when i started playing drums because uh-huh. we'd be hanging out after rehearsal or whatever. We'd have section rehearsal and it'd be just us. Right. And then we would all goof off and, and then take turns. There's only one drum kit. Okay. So one person would get to play the drum kit and everybody else had like a bass drum and a snare drum and like the keyboard and like glockenspiel. Right. And so that was how I started, first started playing um, drum set. It was just fooling around there. Yeah, just messing around in the, yeah. in the, the music department. Yeah. Um, and did you... And then that was it. Then I was like, oh... Okay. That's what I want to do. I was going to say, it was like this, so, because obviously it's like the, the notion of guitar, drums, like that is way more sexy, even though you don't know that term <laughs> at that time. So it's, did you like, did piano basically start to take up like 5% of your musical interest? Yeah. I mean, I was still like primary, you know, I was still piano player primarily. And right. then, um, in high school I started taking, I started, um, taking, I could switch to like jazz piano. Okay. 
there were like jazz, jazz piano lessons I could take. And uh, so I started doing that. But there was also, uh, at my high school, there was like a room with a, with a drum set in it. And my jazz piano player and the, the jazz piano teacher and the drum teacher played in a band, so they were friends. Okay. So I asked him if you could, if you would ask the drum teacher if I could get a key. If I could like practice, you know, when nobody else was using it. Sure. He said, yeah. I would just go in there with headphones. What what records in particular were you trying to play? Um, Fugazi 13 Songs, was the, that was the main. Okay. That was the one. <laughs> At least you're choosing a really technical, like, <laughs> that's not an easy, re- like, yeah. it'd be one thing if you're like, yeah, Green Day Dookie. Like, right. <laughs> no, it was always, it was just that. I mean, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't own a lot of music. Okay. And um, that was one of the tapes I had. Yeah. And, and I had a Walkman and I would. That would, that was the one. I loved the drums on that, on uh-huh. that record. Yeah. The other drums, the drums that I loved uh, were on um, Meanwhile, the Helmet record. Oh, of course. And, but uh, I could, and there were a couple songs that I could try and play, but um, but there was, there were like ton, there was a ton of fills. Oh my gosh. Like crazy yeah. fills on, on that record, so I, I couldn't really do it. Um, right. And I couldn't, couldn't really do 13 songs either, but... But, you uh, felt like you had more of a grasp. But I was grapple. like, okay, there's. I understood the song structure, and I was just trying to play along. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, how did uh, so? How did kind of like independent music? I mean, because like landing on Fugazi, like at that age, like because you were in high school at the time. Yeah. You saying, um, that's uh, you know that that's obviously. Pr- I mean, uh, both Helmet and and Fugazi are, are I would define as somewhat mature. Like you know, I mean, I remember when I was whatever you know, 14, 15 years old, and it was like, yeah, I listened to Fugazi, but it wasn't like it, it wasn't revelatory for me at the time. Yeah, like, I was just like, oh, I get it, it's cool, but it's like Minor Threat's way cooler. Yeah. Um, so how did how did independent music start to infiltrate your life? Was it just through friends? Yeah, it was through friends. I mean, um, my friend Matt. Okay. And I, you know, there was a time when we started, go, you know, we're going to Newberry Comics. Oh yeah. Stopped being about the comics. Okay. And started being about. Look at this other music. stuff. Yeah. Look at this other stuff over here. Yeah. Um, and so we, I don't know, we got it and started getting into, um, you know, in like seventh grade, started getting into, I don't know what it was. It was just that idea of finding music that was transgressive in a way or, or just different from um, what everybody else was listening to and just, sure. just, I don't know, felt a little bit dangerous or exciting. Right. NWA, yep. Public Enemy, oh, Ice-T. And then Metallica, Megadeth, sure, uh, and um, like Faith No More. Oh yeah, um, I think that was right around when Nevermind came out. Sure, and uh, and so that sort of that kind of supplanted everything else that I had listened to. You know, everything else was had, had been like whatever top forty right stuff before then, just whatever is up. what yeah whatever was existing in yeah. the ether. Right, yeah. my first tape was a White Snake tape that my sister let me get off of the. Uh, her like Columbia, Columbia house. <laughs> hey. She's like, I'm getting, I get eight tapes. You can have one. What do you want to get? Totally. And, like, lo- okay. and this is a deal. They're like, they're a penny. Yeah. You're like, oh wait, but the second shipment is like nine million dollars. Yeah. But so I really liked Here I Go Again. So I chose White Snake. That's that perfect. First thing. Yeah. That's, that's your. That's the first record you got. That's yeah. perfect. Very monumental. <laughs> um, that's and I love I love the notion of of the um, you know when you were looking for some like you didn't know what you were looking for musically but it's like the the idea of album art being such an important part of music of that era where it was like you know you looked at it's like i remember going into like you know a warehouse and being like looking at a cannibal corpse record and being like 
that I can't get that. Like that is terrifying. Right. And, and I never did because I always knew I'm just like, that is way too much for me. Yeah. But like looking at those other records, like Megadeth, same thing. I mean, and you know, whatever, Dr. Dre's chronic and like Snoop Dogg, like all that stuff. You just, you look at the record cover and you're like, that is a world. I yeah. don't even know how to describe that, but it's like, and then, and then obviously it's like, cause you have no way of sampling it. You're just like, I hope this is good. Yeah. <laughs> that leap of faith where it's like, and I'm spending 17 bucks on this thing. Like, I'm only gonna have one tape a month or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that, those days. I mean, all everything I, all my music was just cassette dubs of okay. other people's stuff. Sure. Um, and but so I don't know exactly where that went from. How that led to Fugazi? I can't remember. I just I remember, you know, I remember the summer of like ninth grade. Uh-huh. <clears throat> was uh, me and Matt. You know, he had a Sega Genesis. And I used to go over there and we'd play uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Of course. And we used to listen to this tape over and over again. On one side was Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and the other side was Fugazi. And we would just like listen to it over oh, yeah. and over again. It, just, it had like an auto. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, just flip to the other side automatically. Perfect soundtrack. And um, and yeah, some, some, somehow that. Right. And then, yeah, that opened the doors up. Um, and so then as you started to, uh, like, did you, did you have the idea that you wanted to like play in a band or anything once you started to do drums? Like, was that something like, okay. I, you know, I didn't at first, I think I just loved the instrument and I loved the physical physicality of what you have to do with the drums. Right. Um, and then I remember in 10th grade, these guys wanted to do like a cover for a school performance and they asked me if I would play drums with them and yeah. I was like, Okay. Right. Wanted to do a Smashing Pumpkins song, so like, all right, they, you know, they somebody in the in my grade knew that I played drums, and, and so I, lo- I always love that where it's like, especially from a drumming perspective, where it's like, oh yeah, I heard that dude yeah. plays drums, like in the corner, or like just that you get pulled out of obscurity, where it's like, yeah, I do, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that was the first. I wasn't trying to start a band or anything. I just right. Um, I played with those guys. Yeah. Was uh, it terrifying getting up there in front of the audience or were you kind of like, I, I feel protected back here because of the drums? I felt real stage fright at different times in my life. I don't think that was one of them. Right. You, probably, of, you probably didn't have the, like, the wherewithal to kind of put that together. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Being behind the drums made it a little bit, and it was somebody else's song. That's you know, true. Was, um, the, the pressure was sort of diffuse. Right. Um, it wasn't nearly like the first time I sang in front of people. That was much scarier. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, because you're you're obviously putting a reflection of yourself out there. Yeah. And if you get negative feedback, you're like, well, clearly you don't like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then, uh, what was it? What was your actual first band beyond the, the like you know where you guys started to you know try to play shows and like put that stuff together? Um, that wasn't till later. Okay. Um, that was a. a a band I had in college okay, um, was when we when I first started doing like serious shows, like you know going to other cities and whatever, trying to really right. Um, and you were playing drums in that. I was playing drums. Okay, yeah. what was um, it? What band? I was playing was drums and singing. Okay, and we had like two singers. Okay, you know, as like, you should again, like the Fugazi model, <laughs> right? Um, so, so we sort of took, all took turns writing songs. Okay, um, but you know, and we tried for a little bit switching off where like I would play guitar. So at that point, I had learned how to play guitar and started to write songs. Sure. But I still, you know, consider myself a drummer, mm-hmm. and the guitar was just sort of utility. Sure, sure. A way to 
write songs. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, I would play play drums and singing that. And what what band was that? That was called Pinstripe. Okay, I don't think. Yeah, because I, I mean, I knew you play. I knew you played in bands, but I just didn't. I mean, prior to the one AM radio, I I just didn't. I I didn't know what you were doing musically. Yeah. I mean, had you done anything that was like you know? Did you put out records with anybody else that you? That was the first record that we put that I put out was a Pinstripe record. Oh, okay. Yeah, that um, was on my friend's label. Okay. Um, and that was the label that that the first one AM radio record. Oh, okay. Came out on. Too. Perfect. Um, and so then as, as you were kind of, you know, uh, matriculating through high school, um, did, what were your sights set on in regards to like, you know, were you like, I need to do music was, you know, what was the, <laughs> I had no idea that that was even something you, one could do. Sure. Sure. The um, practicalities of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't really understand. I didn't understand how people, like I listened to Minor Threat and Fugazi and like was really into the idea of that sort of culture right but i didn't understand it and i was somewhat on my own about it like i didn't have people around me who were like let's start a band let's you didn't start have a like label. a scene right you didn't have a scene or anything like that that yeah. you felt right i mean there were there were kids who were um uh in bands you know like piebald sure and uh converge these were like the big yeah, yeah. bands um in massachusetts around that, that time and but I just didn't really, didn't quite connect the dots to figure out how how that happens or how you do it. Yeah. Um, and certainly didn't think about the idea of doing music for a living. Right. Um, the The biggest change happened in high school, though, where I realized that I wasn't, you know, I had this this idea of myself as this, like, math science kid mm-hmm. beforehand, but I, that was, I realized that that was actually more imposed on me right. by uh, my surroundings than than by anything else. Then your passion, sure. Yeah, and uh, and then and then in high school, I had some really great teachers, and I realized that that actually wasn't where my heart lay. Okay. And um, I had an English teacher who I really, really admired, and I had a philosophy teacher who I really admired, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was what I wanted to do. I was like, okay, I want to I want to be like these guys. I want to teach. Right. Um, so my plan was to be an English teacher. Okay, that was your pivot. <laughs> um, yeah, my wife is an English teacher, and she the, the notion of like w- once you kind of set down that path, there's like no practical use for an English mate. Like, <laughs> she's just like, well, like that's pretty much what you're gonna do. Like, yeah. you, either, I mean, the, there's obviously delineations of that of like, oh, do you want to teach the college or do you want to teach high school, right? Elementary, but beyond, like, you're gonna be a teacher. Yeah, <laughs> but that's good that you felt like you felt like you uh, went towards that as opposed to like the path that you were on because it's, it is always difficult to be able to sort through what's been just kind of habitual mm-hmm. and then what is actually like, you know, striking your fancy. Like, yeah. <laughs> I had the rare experience of actually liking high school. Yeah. I mean, not for the first year maybe, but, okay. but by the end I, I really liked it and really appreciated going there. Um, and so the, yeah, the, the two teachers I was talking about, I just wanted to do what they want. I wanted to go back to that high school and, and teach and there. Teach. Sure. Yeah. And both of those guys, the teacher, the English teacher and the philosophy teacher, they had both gone to Yale okay. for their undergrad and for their master's degrees and then came back. Okay. And so I was like, oh, that's... Well, You're that's, like, they did that. That's what I should do. Sure. That's what... Um, so so then that became my position. So that, that, was, <laughs> that was what you did. Um, cause yeah, there, there's obviously, I mean, when you say Yale, there's immediate connotations that come to that where it's just like, especially, I mean, it's like in what you are doing now, not only like musically and professionally and everything where it's just like, it's, 
uh, it's easy for a person to write somebody off. It's like, oh yeah, you're one of those people, like you're a Yale person or whatever. Like, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, have you had to? Have you had to have, not specifically battle anybody like face to face, but have you noticed any sort of uh, prejudgments that come into you know kind of what you're doing and what you're putting out there? Where it's like, oh, that's typical, or well, that's <laughs> that's what's expected. I don't think so. At least not consciously. Sure. Um, and you know in music stuff it, it I feel like with one AM radio it didn't usually come up that's cool um, it would just be you know some maybe it would come up in conversation but for the most part I don't think people even know that about me or, right 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 yeah. which yeah I mean that, which is good because it's like especially too where it's like I think something that gets fostered so much within the independent like punk and hardcore scene is that like if you are trying to like be successful at something that isn't music it's like looked down upon hmm. Like that notion of just like, oh cool, you're going to Yale sellout. Like, I mean, not like that was actually happening, but there's, there's definitely those those ideas of like, no, just 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 chill out. Why don't you just like playing bands, man? It's so much cooler or whatever. Um, but that's, that's good. You never felt that direct pressure. I mean, I think that by the time I was playing shows and you know, sort of felt like a part of, of a scene, I'd already been in college for a couple of years right um or a year and a half or so and so that's how i met people that was like the the context in which i met people mm -hmm. the dudes from drumstream you know they lived in new haven that's where i lived sure and that was just sort of a fundamental fact about about me when they met me right and so i don't think there was a uh any kind of second guessing of like oh should you be doing that or should you not be doing that that's just what i was doing right 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 yeah it's like they they knew you for you as opposed to like the, yeah, a notion of you before they met you or anything yeah. like that. It sounds like the Jerome's Dream dudes were kind of the first to like really pull you into that scene, like on a deeper level. In terms of like not just going to shows, right? You know, I used to I was going to shows in Massachusetts um, when I when I'd be there. Um, you know, when I'd be with my friends there, I, we would go to just like random DIY straight edge shows. Sure. Um, were you ever straight as yourself, or did you ever mm -hmm. identify that? Okay. Yeah. Are you still, or are you if you've? Yeah. I am. Yeah. I, I mean, by de by <laughs> definition, <laughs> yeah, you're not. For the listeners out there, he is not wearing his varsity edge jacket currently. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, I stopped. Uh, I, I, at some point, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, I uh -huh. started to feel like um, I started to realize the utility of labels and sure. also like the limitations of them totally and um and i got to a point where i was like oh i understand why it was important for me to feel like there was a group mm -hmm. that i could identify my values with you know because what happened was i was i already was essentially straight edge without knowing the term your default straight I edge mean, right as much as like a 14 year old can be totally but i had this idea that like you know my grandfather didn't drink didn't smoke, didn't eat meat. It, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not part of the, the Indian culture is not fostering, you know, heroin addicts and like, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, I mean, there, it exists obviously there, but it's yeah. like, that's not, right. I mean, there's, you know, my, I mean, like my dad ate meat, my, they, my parents, um, my parents, not like they're drinkers, but like they didn't, yeah, casual they didn't drink, not, right. yeah, sure. my mom used to talk about my grandfather all the time. She had a lot of respect for him and. He, you know, he, he was in jail with Gandhi. He's, uh, he was a judge in India. He was like a, he was sort of like a little hero, right? Um, I met figure. him a few times. Yeah, sure. Met him a few times growing up, but he always had this sort of um, 
looming presence in my life, and I and I just thought he was a badass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, right. He doesn't drink. That sounds pretty cool. I'll yeah, go ahead and do like, that. That's cool. I I I understand why. Yeah. That appeals to him. I just understand why that's important or something. And sure. So um, whether it was a knee jerk thing or, or not, that yeah. was my initial instinct. Was like, I, I want to be like that. Sure. Um, and then. And then I started listening to Minor Threat. Mm-hmm. Somebody introduced me to Minor Threat. And I was like, oh, these guys actually, there's like a word for this. Yeah. And there's like people who make cool music who believe in the same stuff. Totally. Um, and feel like a pressure to have a group to belong to, but having, you know, recognizing that there was one right. was really cool and empowering. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, after a few years, I realized that like I didn't need. Uh, I didn't need that association in order to feel empowered. Totally. And to feel empowered about my decisions. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, some of the yeah, there's artifice no, of it. Of course. There's negative There's negative connotations. Any label you attach yourself to, there's going to be negative connotations to. And it's like, you know, as, a, a, as an adult, one doesn't necessarily need to label themselves as such. It's like, right. no, you, you're just... Yeah. But it's like, for people that know, it's like, well, yeah, you can... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the the... the like you said, the drums, dream guys, like that. That's when you started to feel kind of like part of a, a scene where you were, you know, regularly existing in the context of this kind of independent community. That's when I was actually like playing shows, sure, as opposed to just going to shows, right? Um, and you know, and it also was um, at the same time that I met those guys, uh, I started having um, a new group of friends that I met mm-hmm. at Yale who were into the same stuff. Okay, um, so my friend who's my friend who started the record label sure. um, that Pinstripe's first record was on and, and the first few one radio records were on. Mm-hmm. Um, he was somebody I met when I was a sophomore. His name's David Slade. And he was like, I'm going to start an independent label. And he also went to Yale. Okay. Um, and he and I started playing in a band together with a couple other guys. And um, and then I started basically doing Garbage Zar with David and, and his best friend, Carl. Okay. Um, so David grew up in New Haven and had a bunch of friends from New Haven. And um, and went to Yale, and so he kind of straddled the line. And I had met a bunch of guys in New Haven just through music mm-hmm. before. So there was a small circle of people who kind of um, had a foot in both worlds, right? Um, and you know, musicians who like there's there were New Haven musicians and there were Yale musicians, and then there were people who sort of mixed it both, both. Sure, yeah. and that was sort of where I hung out. Okay, got it. And um, and that was in, it was in that context that I met playing shows with those guys. That's when I met Drums Dream. Sure, like a house show together yeah. the, the band that I was in with, with David and Carl the Garbage Star guys um, we had you know which was like a emo band for lack of a better term sure sure um, we played a house show with Drew on the screen okay and that was how and, that, and we became friends got it um, I always find it so like I love how obviously diverse you know independent music is and the kind of you know the, that whole I mean even though the DIY notion is obviously you know I mean it, it, there's a television network named DIY network it's like it you know it's it's not delegated specifically to what we know um, but you see threads in in what I mean everything that you're doing now currently from it's like from the podcast um, to obviously one AM radio it's like everything has these undercurrents of people that. People like myself who are specifically looking for it, I find it. Yeah. But it's like, even if you're not looking for it, you can probably still see elements of it. It's like, you know, I mean, you having, you know, converge on the show is just one of those things where it's like, you know, 94% of the people that are listening to the show are going to be like, oh my God, like, I don't know what to do with this. But the way that you, obviously, 
I mean, the premise of the podcast of de- deconstructing a song and then listening to it at the end, um, it, it probably also was like, oh, it got some people in, or willing to listen to something that screamed at them. Um, and I'm sure that's kind of a vi- like you feel a small victory on your end where it's like, well, yeah, I can kind of usher people into this like weird world that I've been a part of in, in some capacity. I'm sure it's validating. Well, you know, that was exactly what my expectation was uh-huh. of what was going to happen. Sure. Um, <laughs> You're like, how many people is this going to bum out? <laughs> right. just, yeah, I was, I, and I, I was like, whatever. In this context, e- even people who aren't into hardcore are going to appreciate totally. this and stuff. And I was actually really surprised to find out that there's a huge... It, it, it makes sense now that I think about it. Right. That the people who are listening to podcasts in general yeah. and listening to Song Explorer is... Like it's a lot of people who come from the same culture that I do. So, so I actually got a huge reaction. Probably the biggest reaction I've gotten for any episode. Yeah, um, was from the Converge episode. All these people who um, were, you know, on Twitter were like, "Oh, this is uh, this new podcast that I started listening to. Did an episode with my favorite band. I saw that tweet like 20, 30 times, and and I was like, "Oh, wait, that's not what I was expecting." Right. But then I realized I was like, "Oh, but just like what you're saying, the idea of like." any podcast is sort of rooted in independent media. Totally. And so it makes sense that people who are into that and who are in their 30s or whatever, that that 20 years ago they were listening to Converge. Totally. Yeah. Um, And they were, yeah, and they were going to house shows, basement shows, local venues. Like, I, I feel, again, like going back to the, you know, I feel so, you know, lucky to have like tripped into this stuff because it's like, it, the people that I find myself like either gravitating to or getting along with on a, like a deeper level are the people where it's just like you have that short like I can walk into your house right now and we immediately have like 30 million things to speak of and it's just that shorthand and it's not to say that you wouldn't invite somebody else over to your house but it'd be that like we gotta warm up to each other we gotta like oh so that that's the thread I can pull on right like, you like that book or whatever where we can just be like here's this tapestry of things <laughs> similar experiences yeah um and it's just it's it's great to see that like you're saying it propagates itself in so many different fashions to whatever art a person is creating is inherently rooted to the fact that they're going to you know shows and playing in terrible bands and they're that yeah age. they're seeking out something beyond traditional media yeah um, and so once I once that actually happened I had a revelation of, oh right of course that, right. I should have realized that that right. would have happened but uh, but I didn't I had the opposite expectation. Yeah, I know. It's great that you're pleasantly surprised. Yeah. The another another thing that I mean, I know that you obviously were you were talking to me earlier how you know you're you're either scoring a lot of movies, you're doing a lot of you know soundtrack type stuff. Um, that is like the number. Like if you were to put a list together of people who are you know playing in like punk or hardcore bands and are like you know reaching that age where they're just like shit, like I gotta figure something out. Like, I gotta, like, either I don't have a transition plan to, like, exist in real life, um, but, like, they're really good at music, and so that's, like, that's, like, probably number one or number two in most people's lists. Like, I'm sure you've experienced that where people just like, hey, how do you do that? <laughs> I'm sure everybody asks you that. Um, is Was it one of those things that, like, you, by happenstance, you started to kind of do that because of the music you were creating with 1AM Radio, um, or was it a concerted effort where you were, like, Oh, because I'm creating this music, I think it's well suited to this format. Actually, me wanting to score films—that um, was an idea that predated the One AM Radio. Okay, um, it was the reason why I moved to Los Angeles in the okay. first place. And um, I was like, "Well, I need to move to Los Angeles, and I can do the One AM Radio from anywhere." So I 
might as well because that's where I need to be in order sure. to score films. But before the one, before I'd ever put out anything as the one a radio. Um, by that point, you know, somewhere around the middle of college, I realized that was what I wanted to do. Okay, and it's um, taken me a little while to get well, get yeah. to that point. But you know, I came out here and I was an assistant to a, to a composer for a little while, and I worked on a few films, right? Um, scored some short films, and it just took me that long to get a feature. Sure, sure. Um, which I mean, again, it's just like it's the same way that a band exists. Yeah, you're going to have to play these more like the fun. But probably terrible shows in order to get up to like oh wow like I can actually play out of state or whatever. Um, it's like, <laughs> I mean it's the for anyone that like has the notion of like oh it's like not an overnight success but it's like you see the successes that people have and you're just like I wonder what hard work's gone into that. That's what people should ask as opposed to like why don't I have that? <laughs> it's like well there's probably you probably got ten years to like work to that spot. <laughs> um, and the. Uh, I mean, since since one AM, like you were saying earlier, like one AM radio was uh, a focal point of kind of what you were doing for a few years there. To where um, you know, did you have to make that tough decision where it's like I have to scale back one AM radio because of all these real life limitations and like I'm not able to tour two hundred some odd days out of because at one point you were doing that, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, um, and I would be doing it now if I had a new record. I just. Mm-hmm. Um, I never made a conscious decision to scale back. It's okay. just that um, after the last, you know, I, I after the last record came out a couple years ago, right. I was um, also scoring my first film at the same time, and um, and when we were done with the tour, I was just like, I don't want to play. I don't, I'm kind of I was like done with that set. Sure, and um, I just wanted to wait to do another record before I. Got started, out there, yeah. Sure, did like built a whole thing together. Right. Every time a new record comes out, it's sort of like I have to rebuild the band or just like re envision the whole project a little bit. Of course. Um. So with every record, like, well, it's all you. Yeah. And there's different <laughs> people who have toured with me every single year, like right. year to year, things change. Um. And so I wanted to sort of just take a second and figure out what I was going to do with the next record, and and um, and then after that that film came out I got another film mm-hmm. and I started working on that and I'm not very good at um, multitasking when it comes to music like I can do other things you know I can do some artwork and I can do you know other kind things you know, other like mediums sure, yeah right but I can't uh, it's harder for me to you know be in I couldn't be I couldn't write songs probably for multiple bands at the same time or uh, the way that some people can yeah yeah it's hard for me to um Compartmentalize, yeah, like, yeah. You know how people will have different personas. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'll put out records under different um, names. Like Nick Cave was, has Grinder Man over here, right. and then Nick Cave over here, and I, I can never figure out. How yeah, to you're, do that. you're only one M right here. Yeah, <laughs> and so so when I, when I was in a film scoring mode, uh, I just was putting everything into that, and then um, and I just haven't haven't written a record's worth of songs yet yeah yeah yeah. so do you um i mean the process of obviously like just because you know the 1am radio is is you know a moniker which is obviously you um did you uh did you feel well first of all did you like touring (laughs) because i mean i there in certain i'm sure in certain aspects because you were were you did you ever tour just like solely by yourself or did you always okay um i did yeah and would was that 
pleasant or was touring with a band more pleasant or touring in general? Because, I mean, that's not for everybody. Yeah. Especially I love it. Okay. I, I love all of it. Um, okay. I think, um, I don't, I don't, um, love being, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know too, it's, it's a hard thing to explain because you don't want to sound, I know everybody always like, if there's ever any complaints about touring, people don't want to sound like, oh, touring sucks, it's so hard. And it's like, well, like Soda's working at a day job from nine right. to five or whatever. So it's like, yeah, you don't want to be like, you know, yeah, you don't, you don't want to feel ungrateful to that fact, but it's like, the reality is that it's like, you know, it, touring is 90% of it is boredom. 10% yeah. is awesome. Exactly. Uh, and I think I get something out of just touring by myself mm -hmm. and I've enjoyed that. But, um, but I like being able to have a conversation. I like having people around. Right. So I prefer touring with other people. Right. Um, if I had to only pick one, sure. I would probably pick that. Right. But I, I like being able to do both. I think, you know, driving by yourself is great when you know that there's a show at the end of it. It, was, it would be really nice, you know, I'd drive for like 10 hours, get to the show, and then get to hang out with people, you know, and then... Right. The yeah, you were like, you're like, I'm ready to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going stir crazy. I drove, drove now. I'm excited to see all these people. And yeah. Yeah, I can see where that, as opposed to sometimes where it's like, you're touring with a band and then you get to the venue and you're just like, you're just spent. You just like talk to these people or it's just like, there's a weird malaise in the van. And you're just like, Oh God, I just got to get away from these people. <laughs> you're like, well, I can't get away from myself. So right. <laughs> I can't wait to hang out with all of you. Um, and so the, uh, the, I mean, once I discovered song exploder and then hearing, um, like knowing your musical output and like hearing the format of the podcast, it was like, Oh yeah, it's like 100% makes sense. Like, <laughs> like it, it it was one of those like things where it's just like not only does it speak to like the personality that you've you know exhibited through your music, um, but just the intricacies. Not knowing what I know more about you now uh, of song craft and structure, because like I joked to you over email, like I I sang for all the bands I played in. I have no musical talent from like a songwriting <laughs> perspective, um, so I, I I heard the notion of it and I'm just like oh that'll be terrible. Like I won't be I mean it'll be terrible for me. I don't think I'll be that interested in it. Um, but the way that you've built it to where it's like, it's obviously a testament to what the format is, you know? Um, so when did, I mean, did the idea exist in your head for a long time to do this and it took you a while to kind of muster up the courage to put something like this together? Yeah, it was an idea I've had for a long time as, you know, something that somebody else should do. Right. It's like, that would be cool if somebody did <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, and then, um, Last year, I was at South by Southwest with the one of the films that I scored. Okay, um, and I'd never been to South by Southwest for the film and and technology part. I oh yeah, that for music, right? And that half is totally different. Mm -hmm. The vibe is totally different. Really? And the yeah, I've never who were there. Completely different. Interesting. Um, it's a lot less sort of like drunken party, yeah, yeah. party bro, right? Vibe. Um, not bro exactly, but you know, like hipster party bro. Completely. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of a little quieter and, and nerdier. And, right. Uh, there were all these people who were showcasing apps, I think in a completely unofficial way, you know, like they'd just be hanging out, you know, trying to get people to like sign up for something or giving them postcards. And I, I got a couple of the things and they were like really well-produced, nicely designed 
little promo materials and something I just something about that idea uh-huh. of these guys doing it themselves. Okay. I don't know, it felt I was like there's a there's a DIY version of of like technology or the, or like totally. a different kind of approach and I um except I've known that of course but I some reason it struck me on that trip mm-hmm. and so coming back from that I, I decided I'll, I will just try and yeah, make, roll make it actually be like okay I'm going to try and see what this could be sure um, and yeah I was just excited to, to try and figure it out right um, so that was in March of last year okay and then it took me took me a while to actually um, make it a real thing sure um, as much as uh as much as that sort of DIY spirit was inspiring, I also was afraid of making something that would just um, languish in the ether, you know, um, that it would feel like public access. Of course. I'm just putting something out there. No one's really listening. We don't, I don't, I mean, I see numbers, I see people are downloading it, but that doesn't necessarily give you any feedback. Right. Yeah. Um, so I thought it would be nice to try and find a home for it. Uh-huh. Um, and... One of my favorite podcasts is The Memory Palace. Sure. And um, it's the only one that I sort of followed really um, regularly. Avidly. Sure, yeah. sure. And at some point, you know, he announced that he was now going to be a part of the Maximum Fun Network. I didn't know what that was. Right. But um, but so then when I was making Song Exploder right. at first um, and thinking about where it could be, you know, Memory Palace was like, well, that, it's good enough for that guy, then. Right, yeah. Check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I sent a demo. I made a demo and I sent it to them. That's awesome. Um, and I've never even thought, I never even thought about the context of that. Like, yeah, like it, it makes sense for, you know, a, a prominent person in whatever industry. Like, you, you, yeah, you have to make a demo. Like, <laughs> that's cool. I mean, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing as, you know, giving a you know, crappy demo tape to, you know, the band you played with that night. Be like, oh, dude, here you go. Yeah. Like, maybe we'll play some shows together. It's exactly, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a letter and sent a CD with like an endless download link because who listens to CDs anymore? Right. <laughs> but, but I sent it just in case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I sent it to Jesse Thorne. Sure. You know, and he had had, um, I think he had Ted Leo on his show mm-hmm. yeah, at one did. point. And so I sent him a copy of my split with Ted Leo. And the note and the demo. And right. I was like, you you're like, I'm, I'm establishing, I'm establishing credibility. Right. I'm not just, because you had, you always, I feel, I totally get that because I feel like they're, especially when you've kind of done a lot of stuff, but obviously it's like never risen to like the mainstream level where it's like, you should know me. Like, you should know me. Like, right, right. and plus, if you're presuming that, you're an asshole anyways. But the, yeah, you feel like you have to quantify yourself in some capacities where you're just like, Dude, I'm not I like this. Is a deliberate thing, I'm not some schmo. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I had no idea what the kind of volume of demos they get, or you know, people yeah. trying to do that. So, so yeah, for some context, yeah. and um, I sent that in like September or something, and then didn't hear from him, and um, didn't know exactly what the protocol was for following. How up. long do I wait? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but I have a friend here who's an actor his name is josh molina uh-huh. um who was on like the west wing and and sure and stuff and he had been on on bullseye he'd been on jesse's show 
And so I asked him, I was like, do you, I was like, do you know this guy? Do you, do you have his email work? address? Yeah. And he was like, oh, sure, yeah. He's, like, oh, he's a nice guy. Let me um, try and find his email. And then um, he just couldn't find it. And then in December, this past December, he was like, I found his email. Uh, <laughs> and I talked to him, and he's going to get in touch with you. Perfect. And um, so, I got, so, so then we were in email contact, and, and I remember he was like, okay, let's talk tomorrow. Yeah, and or he he said something about like he's like I think it's a cool idea you know and if you want some if you want to have a conversation I can give you some feedback sure and I was like okay so it sounds like it's not for him but yeah um, but I could get some advice and certainly I don't know what the hell I'm doing so sure you're um, like this is perfect yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take any advice I can get right so um, we spoke the next day on the phone and somewhere in the middle of the conversation I realized that he was saying that he would. Put the show, yeah, put sure. pick the show up, and he was like, and so he's like, yeah. So we're announcing five new shows on January first, and we'd love to include this as one of the shows. And I was like, it's December seventeenth, and I was going on a trip with my family on Christmas Day for two weeks. Sure, I was, we were going to India. Okay, so I was like, so I had eight days to get it ready, and there were things that you know that he had suggested that were good ideas, right? Like, like changing the name. Okay. The original name was deconstructed. Okay, and uh, and he said he was like, it's a great name, it works, but um, but it's really important for people for to have a name that for people who don't know what the show is, uh, for them to understand what it what it might be. Sure. Whereas the, you know, deconstructed might be cool, but a little bit um, more oblique. Sure. I was like, okay, that's a good idea, and also the original demo. You know, I'm not in the podcast that much. Right. Um, originally, I wasn't in it at all. Oh, okay. Um, so the, the the first episode, the Postal Service episode, I originally had, it was just Jimmy Tamborello doing the intro by himself. Got it. Um, and that was my plan, is that every artist would introduce their own sure. song um, and their own episode. And I just wouldn't be in it at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm producing this. I'm not a host. Right? Yeah, sure. There's no host. It's just... Right. And I thought that would be kind of a unique take on it mm-hmm. and I and I liked that and I'm not wasn't really interested in being having right. my personality be a part of it sure but he said that he thought it was important he's like it's nice for listeners to feel like there's an author mm-hmm. behind things I thought that was smart advice so then I had to f- f- come up with a new name figure out the format <laughs> shove know, this all in yeah. yeah and get it up make a website <laughs> publish it to you know sure. figure out the here's the artwork here's, yeah. here's everything all that stuff and luckily, I had Jesse and, and all the people at Maximum Fun to help me figure that stuff out. But right. I only had a week to do it. Right. Um, so that, that got a little bit crazy. <laughs> like what? Definitely down to crunch time where it's just like, oh, oh, so this is ha- Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, I'll get that done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> where does it go from here? Uh, the last thing I wanted to hit on before I left you um, <clears throat> was the, well, one kind of going back to the point, like the, I think what... Is something I've realized in regards to like the, you know, the DIY nature of a lot of different things. Um, like you were saying, technology, how that kind of opened your, your eyes. I think what inherently makes the, you know, DIY, whatever punk hardcore slash independent community from the musical perspective special is because like there, even though now there is a notion that bands of that nature can exist off of their music. Um, they're obviously at many points, there's never been a note like you know you weren't playing in bands because you're like oh dude like this is it like <laughs> and it's like 
I mean, same as me and same as a million of other mutual friends. Like, that was never the notion. I mean, Converge, <laughs> they never thought they would be a band 20-some-odd years later. Um, so because there's no sort of monetary attachment, it's just the, like, well, this is exciting. It could afford us opportunities, but that's it. Whereas technology companies, it's like, cool, in six months I'm going to get Yahoo to buy this out, right? Like, right. <laughs> and so I, th- I think that's kind of like, you know, what obviously, what I've noticed where it's like it kind of make it, you know, the that this this community that we're a part of is it, it kind of stays in its own lane from that perspective because yeah it does its best to not be corrupted from <laughs> the the monetary gains um yeah for better or for worse i mean there was it's a, true there was a time when i i had an offer from apple to work there sure and i worked there for three months um doing design okay uh they needed some help and they were looking to hire new people right. and, uh, and I was like, Oh, I'm not really looking for a, I want to live in LA. I want to do music. I want to do film music. I'm not trying to do design as my full-time job, but I don't want to have a full-time job. I just want to make music as much as possible and then work as whatever I have to, to pay the rent. Sure. Thought it'd be a good idea to just try it, you know, make a little bit of money and then have something to live off of. Um, and so I worked, I, I, they offered me like a six month contract and I was like, how about three months? And they're like, okay. And so I went there and worked for three months. And then at the end of it, I was like, I got to go on tour. And I think about that decision a lot because I, that was, was a lot of money sure. that I made for like a brief amount of time. And even if I had gotten on for six months, I mean, it just would have been, my life would be completely different. Sure. Know, living in San Francisco and like making that kind of money was insane. Yeah. Um, and that was a long time ago now. Yeah, but, but it but it took you. I mean, that's. But it was a conscious decision to be right. like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I sure. don't want this stuff. I don't want this because ultimately, I think what 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 I've noticed that you know sort of pulls people away from their passions is, I mean, obviously financial concerns and reasons like that's you know number one. But like as you were alluding to earlier, like time, like time is clearly a resource. So it's like the the time and the energy. So it's like you know a person after a day of work. It's like, you know, they have from like five at night until, you know, 10 at night until they're exhausted. Um, But it's like, want to build your life as such to where whatever it is you're doing to put the, you know, the food on the table, so to speak, won't inhibit that, like that, you'll still have that energy. Even if you are doing something that you don't particularly care about, that it still will afford you that opportunity to be creative in whatever capacity you want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's where a lot of people lose it, where they're just like, oh, after like six months, they're just like, I'm tired. Like, you know, you, everybody gets lazy, and that's understandable. Yeah. But for you, like you were saying, to make that conscious decision, like, I like where it's like, yeah, I gotta go on tour. Like, yeah, I like how you negotiated from six months to three months. Too. <laughs> you were just like, no, uh, yeah, that's three, so three, dumb. Right? <laughs> you're like three months. You're like, who does a three month contract? Like, no, I could have lived off that money for like a year and a half. That's crazy. I mean, because I. Uh, at the time when I was where I was living in LA, I was literally living in my friend's closet for two hundred dollars a month. Right. So I, I mean, I could stretch that out for, for such a long time. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, twenty grand. Like, dude, this is that's two years right there. <laughs> You're like, as long as I don't spend any money on anything else, this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I really appreciate you hanging out, and thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. No, you invited me. <laughs> So there you go. That was Hirakesh, and I can't thank him enough for doing that. And like I said, check out his podcast, Song Exploder. You can find it on iTunes or MaximumFun.org. Great show. Just love it. And visit 100wordspodcast.com. Our producer, as always, is Tom Richfield. Endless amounts of love poured out to that, that young chap. 
because he's a chap. He's from the UK. Thank you very much for listening. And until next week, be safe, everybody. <laughs>